Okay, welcome back. Um, our last paper of the conference is by Leo Hanian and Kyle Herkenhoff, titled Labor Market, well, it's not titled Labor Market Dysfunctions anymore. It's uh, Labor Market Dysfunction During the 1930s and Today. Okay, um, <clears throat> so, as the, uh, so as the last paper, I want to take this opportunity to thank Jeff for putting together the program and, and thank Cato for sponsoring it. It's been a pleasure. Um, okay, so um, so what we mean by labor market dysfunction is the failure of an economy, particularly uh, employment recovery after the trough of a recession. So I'll begin with some data. Um, so I have way too many slides, um, and some I'll skip over with, uh, with the hope that John and, and, and Bob will cover some details that I don't get a chance to get to. So I'm going to start with some data, and um, you know, the norm is for a fast recovery from you know, substantial U.S. economic declines. The last substantial decline we had was the 81-82 recession. This table shows the pattern of GDP and its components following the trough, and what you see is that six quarters after the trough, uh, you know, the economy is back on trend. Um, so trend, uh, trend means 100. So you see, you see employment being uh, at 100 or close to 100 roughly a year after the trough. So that's the norm. Uh, for, for recoveries. Um, so the two exceptions in terms of major declines are the Great Depression in the 30s and in the Great Recession more recently. So the same kind of numbers are presented here. This is the 1930s. And again, what you see is, so trend means 100 for every category. And what you see is, um, you know, the failure of the economy to recover. Um, so when you look at employment, uh, it was down, you know, about 14 percent in 1931 relative to trend. It's still down about 14 percent relative to trend in 1939. And, uh, and similarly for consumption um, and output. So here's a picture for those same variables for the Great Recession. For the 30s, we don't have quarterly data, but, but we do for, for now. Um, and again, what you see is, in terms of, you know, there's many comparisons between the Great Recession and the Great Depression. Obviously, there's really not much of comparison in terms of severity, you know, luckily, but you do see a comparison in terms of failure to recover. So take a look at the uh, employment column, and you know, there's just really not much recovery in terms of um, uh, employment per working age population uh, relative, to, uh, relative to the trough. Slightly different way of looking uh, at this recession is to look at uh, the change in U.S. employment. 36 months after the peak and uh, the previous peak. And what you see is recessions are relatively short with robust recoveries. Every single one of these is a post-war recession. Um, and again, you see you know, the only one with really substantial drop in employment is the, is the current recession. So, so obviously something's different in this episode. And uh, you know, Jeff, asked, uh, Jeff asked us if we were interested in you know, thinking about these two episodes, which, which I think is fascinating. And I think perhaps, you know, from my standpoint, one of the most interesting questions is why doesn't labor input recover? Um, so work I've done and work I've done with Hal Cole about the 30s suggests that cartelization uh, and uh, unionization policies played a key role in why the economy didn't come back in the 1930s. Um, but, but that, um, and despite a number of newspapers citing what we've uh, done, that's not what's, uh, and, and saying that was important for today, that's obviously not what's important for today. Um, there's not major changes in unionization policies and not, um, and despite some of the bailouts, um, I don't think we would point to, you know, enormous wholesale changes in industrial policies today. Uh, but for today, many conjecture there's a link between the housing market and the failure to recover. 
so that's the angle we're going to pursue. We're going to look at one piece of that, uh, which is mortgage modifications. And mortgage modifications reduce mortgage payments uh, to borrowers who are in financial distress uh, and allows them to stay in the homes they're occupying rather than be foreclosed on and move. And we wanted to pursue this. Um, we thought it was thematically interesting from the perspective of Cato. It, it's a policy that distorts incentives in a number of interesting ways, we think. Um, it's a controversial policy. Many people, many commentators have suggested it should never have been done. Um, many commentators suggest it should have been done, but it was badly designed because not many people took out modifications, and many of those who took out modifications ultimately did default. Um, so we thought that was interesting. And um, you know, the policy really hasn't been analyzed in, a, uh, in an optimizing framework. So, so this was of interest to us. And another interesting aspect is that in terms of this recession, there's large regional and sectoral differences relative to other recessions. So here's a picture of the variance of unemployment across states. Um, and you can see that the variance of unemployment across states uh, you know, recently is very high relative to what it had been uh, you know, in the previous 10 years. You have to go back to the early to mid-1980s to see similar differences in unemployment rates across states. Okay, um, so in terms of this paper and thinking about mortgage modifications, there's a number of questions um, that economists, policymakers have asked that we're gonna try to shed some light on. Um, one is, you know, why not more modifications taken? Um, the modification rate has been uh, about 1.3% of mortgages per year for the modification that we'll be looking at more, most closely. Why do so many modifications fail? Uh, the default rate, even a year after, uh, just within a year after the modification is taken, default rates can be 30 to 40%. So even after having the mortgage modified, um, borrowers still default. Um, you know, the government intended this for a particular segment of people is that, are those, is that segment of people uh, undertaking them? So in other words, what mortgages borrowers modify? Is it arms, fixed rate mortgages, near foreclosure borrowers? So the model has something to say about that. And then finally, what's the impact on the economy? Um, modifications in our world are gonna distort some margins. Um, and so we'll, uh, we'll take a look at that. Um, to do this, we're gonna develop a, a decision theoretic model. There's gonna be heterogeneous consumers and mortgage borrowers. They're going to have a fairly rich differences in skills, in the types of mortgages. We'll have fixed rate mortgages, we'll have arms, and we'll allow those mortgages to be modified. And they'll be making choices in terms of whether to accept offers or not. And uh, we'll do take a look. I don't know if I'll have time to look at uh, both steady state and uh, what we call a young fist sergeant turbulence experiment, but, but Lars and Tom have written a number of papers where they ask, how do policies distort un unemployment? Um, they consider a one-time exogenous change in terms of destroying jobs and then ask in a world with certain policies versus a world without certain policies, how do choices evolve and how does that impact employment um, and output and, uh, and productivity? So in terms of previewing the answers, um, so the answers to questions one through three um, are going to depend very importantly on an option value aspect of the policy. Um, the modification we focus on is one in which you can take one time, one time only. So there's an option value, and there's going to be an option value to wait. And that option value to wait is going to have a lot to say about uh, shedding light on the first three questions. In terms of you know, the impact on the economy, um, this is something we're still working on. There's a sense in which what we've done so far, we talk about 50 basis points, or one half of 1% 1 
uh, one, one half of one percentage point of unemployment, uh, there's a sense in which we've pushed the envelope on the model to see how much we can get along this dimension. Um, other, other dimensions we've been somewhat conservative on, but I think 50 basis points might be an upper bound. Um, and we've done that to see not only how much can we get from the model, but also to understand more about this option value. And, and I'll, I'll talk about that more a bit later. And then uh, outputs about you know, somewhere between one half to about 1% lower, reflecting lower employment, as well as a deterioration in the skills of individuals as they're in unemployment longer. So as in young fifth sergeant, we're, we're going to have individuals whose skills deteriorate over time, on average, as they're in, as they're in uh, unemployment. OK, so let me just say a, a, a couple, couple words about mortgage modifications. Um, what these are about, they're, uh, you know, they're intended to subsidize homeowners. So really kind of two goals of the, of the policy. One, to, um, to keep um, homeowners in their, uh, or borrowers in their homes. And sort of a side, uh, side goal is to stabilize home prices by stopping foreclosures and having these fire sales. So how do these work? Well, they reduce monthly payments so, uh, to, to what ostensibly would, would be an affordable level. Now, the thing we're going to rely on is modifications are means tested. And that is, you walk in the door and you say, here's my mortgage. I'm now unemployed. Here's my income level. And the, uh, the modifier or the servicer reduces the mortgage, pay the mor reduces the mortgage payment to uh, either 31 or 38% of your current income. Um, and the, the acronym DTI stands for debt to income. Think of that as your monthly payment to income uh, ratio. And this is going to be large mortgage payment reductions for some borrowers, in particular those that, who started out with very high initial payment to income ratios and then had a significant income loss, for example, through unemployment. So the way we think about this, this changes incentives in two ways. It changes the incentive to keep, to keep income low during the application and trial period, and that when you apply for modification, you go through a trial period, you need to keep income very close to the income you reported. So it changes the incentive to, to accept jobs that may not that, that, uh, offer wages not too much far above what you have right now. Uh, we're going to call that a job acceptance distortion. There's also incentive to, uh, to stay in your home and not relocate to a better labor market. Um, and we call that a relocation distortion. In this version of the paper, uh, we'll talk about this relocation distortion. And we're in the process of, um, of including uh, the job acceptance distortion. OK, um, so here's how these things work. Um, so the idea is to reduce mortgage payments on uh, delinquent or loans or uh, loans in which the servicer thinks they will be reasonably defaulted on. So the way these work is, first, the interest rate is cut to a minimum of 2%. After five years, that interest rate will rise over time to a number that's specified at the time the, the modification contract is written. Uh, delinquent payments are amortized. Um, and now if this process doesn't drop the, uh, de, uh, the payment to income ratio to 31%, then the term of the mortgage is, is extended to as long as 40 years. Uh, now if that doesn't do the trick, then principal is deferred to the end of the mortgage as a balloon payment, but it doesn't accumulate any interest. And then there, there's some other aspects. Late fees and penalties are eliminated. Uh, the government provides incentives. Uh, successful modifiers get um, $1,000 a year for five years. Servicers, there's an, they get $1,000 per modification and then another $1,000 uh, for three years after that. Um, if you're a servicer, 
if you um, if you're looking at a modified loan and the net present value of that loan rises and it might for a number of reasons then you must do the modification uh, if it doesn't you modify uh, to your discretion if you prefer that to foreclosing or you must consider the borrower for other types of uh, what they call mortgage solution plans okay so here's some facts I'm not going to I'm not, not going to take a look at, uh, at all of them but um, when people talk about, you know, not many modifications were taken, why not? These, um, these, are, the numbers these are the numbers they're looking at. And um, in terms of the modifications uh, uh, relative to the number of mortgages, you can see those in the first couple of rows. So again, the basic idea here is there are people that are either in the process of foreclosure and a modification will stop that process or who are on the cusp what servicers would believe to be close to the cusp of foreclosure. With foreclosure, they exit the home. Um, with modification, they can stay in the home. Um, so this table summarizes some aspects of the modifications. Um, people talk about front end and back end. Front end means this is the ratio of your mortgage payment uh, to your income. Back end is this is the ratio of all mandated payments to income, which include not only housing payments, but also credit cards, car loans, uh, spousal support, child support, et cetera. Um, so what you'll see from this, from the, looking at the second row, is that from the standpoint of a household who's got mandated payments, um, the median modifier, the median modifier is really up against the wall. Uh, the third row shows what happens to the housing payment before and after the modification. You see the median decrease is a little over $6,000 per year. Um, you know, relative to median unemployment, um, that's about a one-third, uh, that's about one-third uh, of income. Um, so for an unemployed homeowner, these modifications for the median person are, are fairly substantial. And it'll be this type of calculation, the model, that's going to be distorting the incentive uh, for households. That is, they're going to get a large subsidy. Um, so what's going to matter in this model a lot is, not surprisingly, payment to income ratios. So here's a couple of pictures. These are, um, these are prime borrowers. And here's subprime. And the thing I'd like to take away from this is that a fair number of both prime and subprime borrowers have fairly high initial debt-to-income ratios. So these are people who are taking out mortgages uh, whose monthly payments are taking up a fair amount of pre-tax income. Okay, there's a literature on the economic incentives to move, and um, for time reasons, I'm not going to say um, I'm not going to say a lot about this. Some of the literature talks about either the inability or or ability of underwater uh, mortgage uh, borrowers to move. Um, we're not, uh, I'm not going to say too much about this now, um, but I think our paper has, you know, has a complimentary, some compliments and implications for this literature. I think Bob might touch on some of these issues and uh, so, so we can perhaps take them up during the discussion period. Uh, but basically the papers in this literature don't have that much to say about modifications, which is the margin we're thinking about, and I think one reason why our paper is complimentary to that literature. Okay, in terms of the model, there's going to be two islands. Um, they're symmetric, but we'll look at it from the perspective of somebody on Island A, which we'll call a local island, and there's an alternative Island B. So individuals um, 
Uh, Jeff, do I, have a, do I have a pointer here? I keep going up there. And, okay. Um, so individual. Okay, okay. Okay. So uh, individuals have preferences over uh, non-durable consumption and housing services. And housing services for homeowners are higher than if you rent. Households discount at a rate in involving pure time preference, and there's a survival probability. Um, households will live about 40, 45 years in this world. For an individual making uh, mortgage payments, they've got some income. Pi A is your skill level, and W is, is just a scalar. So Pi A is, is how skilled you are. That determines your, um, your income. And then M is your mortgage payment. And I'll talk about gamma and N in a couple of minutes. But essentially, how much you can consume is just the difference between, if you're paying your mortgage, the difference between your income and your mortgage payment. That, uh, oh, okay, excellent, thank you. Oh. I, I went, something, something bad happened here. You said you were gonna skip a few slides. I, I, <laughs> I was. I was going to skip a few slides. Those weren't the ones I was going to skip. <laughs> uh, there we go. Now, um, where is the... Nope, uh, nope, nope. No. I'll get this right at some point. There it is. Okay. Uh, all right. Okay. The, um, so skill level is... Uh, skill level is drawn from a Markov chain, pi A. And we're going to assume that there's an alternative labor market, which is island B. And um, let's see, that stochastically dominates. So all other things equal, the expected value of island B exceeds that in island A. Um, as a young fist sergeant who, who uh, draw on work by um, others who look at what happens uh, to individuals um, who are in unemployment for a long time in terms of what happens to their wages, Skill levels tend to de depreciate for unemployed individuals. They tend to improve for employed individuals. Uh, there'll be an exogenous destruction of jobs, and, the, and the, uh, the probability that the job continues is PE. There's unemployment benefits, which will be about half of your wage, or a maximum un unemployment benefit B-bar. And in the, you know, in, the, in the current economy, unemployment um, in a number of states go for two years. Uh, we'll have that as well. Benefits to keep the problem recursive. And it's, challenge, it's a challenge to do this recursively. Um, to do it recursively, uh, simply, uh, we have benefits declining over time, and that asymptote to zero after two years. And uh, I don't have time to talk about uh, sort of the re reality of that, but, but um, you know, we, ha we, have some, we have some material about that. So if an individual is unemployed, uh, they, will have a, they will have a draw from that Markov chain pi A. And if it's in their best interest to accept that offer, they will. If it's, their, if it's in their best interest to take unemployment, they will do that. Okay, um, now there's a moving cost. So exiting a house incurs a utility cost of M. Once you're out of the house, there's no additional cost to relocating to island B, which is the island that has an expected value terms of uh, a better labor market. And so in this model, um, you move if the expected value of island B dominates the current uh, draw from, that you have from island A. So some people who are foreclosed upon um, will stay on the island A uh, if it's in their best interest, and some uh, who are foreclosed upon will go to island B. Okay, so this mortgage payment M, uh, there's these objects gamma and N. 
if, uh, if you relocate, um, you're out of the house, and you rent a home, uh, and then you continue to rent in the future with some probability alpha, if there's a probability one minus alpha, you reaccess the housing market. You, you receive a, a stochastic mortgage draw in terms of what that monthly payment is. And if you like it, you take the mortgage. If you don't, you keep renting. N is the term of the mortgage. We'll have mortgages that go up to about 35 years. And gamma is the payment time profile. And all that means is that if you have an adjustable rate mortgage, it's going to change over time. Um, if you have a modified mortgage, it changes over time. And um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this picture, but this is just the, this is what these things look like. There's a bunch of different fixed rate mortgages. Some have very low payments, some have higher payments, but it's a fixed rate. There's adjustable rate mortgages, and we're going to think about mortgages that have teaser rates, which is obviously something we saw in uh, in the current economy. And there's a bunch of different types of adjust rate mortgages that uh, that will go up over time. And then modified mortgages have a stair-step profile because the modification program works by fixing your interest rate for five years, and then it rises gradually over time. Um, so gamma is this object that just summarizes these pictures and allows us to do this recursively. OK, here's a value function. Uh, I'm going to let um, John or Bob tell you about that. And uh, John has some nice pictures for that. So uh, I'm not going to use my time on that, but, but uh, that's what's in the computer code. There's a bunch of value functions. There's another one. Um, <laughs> uh, let me see how much time I have. Yep, I'm not going to talk about those. OK, so in terms of the, uh, yeah, this is a tough paper to present in 30 minutes. Um, so in terms of how do we model the modification process, we have, a as you saw, we have a rich set of loans um, between fixed rate and adjustable rate mortgages. We have this modification process that we're going to try to get close to um, the government's program that's called HAMP, Home Affordability Modification Program. Uh, so, what, so what it does is um, if, you're, if your uh, payment to income ratio is above 31%, you can request a modification. The modifier um, uh, used to cast you receive a new payment. Um, it might be dropping your DTI to 31%. You might end up having a higher monthly payment between the current rate and the reset rate. Some modifications do uh, increase, so we're going to have that. And some modifications, there's no change. So it's one of those three uh, alternatives. And then you also there's also a stochastic extension in the term of the mortgage. It might be up to five years, and that depends upon your debt-to-income ratio. Higher DTIs have longer uh, term extensions. Now, we don't model the lender side. Um, lenders modify everybody who requests a DTI uh, between 31 and 160 percent. Um, at 160 percent, these would be people what I, that I showed you before that would have very initially high DTIs. Um, and I'll tell you what happens if we don't do that, and that's going to illustrate uh, how important the option value in this model is. You can only do this one time, and households know that. You can, re you can request a modification one time. And so you can already imagine how this is going to work in terms of, you know, there's an option value to wait. When are you going to exercise the option? Okay, we're going to do two experiments. We're going to look at um, a steady state uh, of, of two economies, one with modification, one without. Uh, we're going to endow households with identical initial conditions and then just follow decisions over time. Then we'll do this turbulence experiment in which we have a one-time doubling of the unemployment rate. We're going we're we're to increase job destruction and then look at a, at a world with modifications and a world without modifications. Um, parameterization, I'm not going to say much about this other than um, uh, that about 25% of the mortgages in this world are adjustable rate mortgages, which is, which is roughly in the data very recently. They're going to start out with teaser rates, 
and those teaser rates will uh, essentially uh, increase substantially. Uh, and again, I think that's representative of our current economy. In terms of transitions across uh, across employment, um, uh, if you're unemployed, there's a 15% chance that your skill declines. Um, if you're employed, there's only a 7.5% chance that your skill declines. Um, so that's going to be important in some of what, we, what I show you in a minute. Okay, so here's some steady state tables. Um, I can no longer get Bob's thing to work. I'm sure it's my problem and not, uh, not the thing, so I'm just going to go over, I'm going to go back over here. In this world, um, we have about a 50 basis point increase on unemployment. I'm, as I mentioned, I think we're pushing the envelope here because on average, our modifications are more generous than in the data. In particular, the median person who modifies in our model is one whose payment is about equal to their income. Um, so they're getting very generous modifications. What happens to unemployment duration? Um, it goes up about 8% in the modified world. And again, what's happening is that we're keeping people in homes that they otherwise would be exiting. And some of those people who exit, um, some of those people who exit will be going to this alternative labor market where job prospects are somewhat better. What about skills? Um, unemployed are having about a 7% drop in their skill and their productivity. And for the employees, about 8%. And this 8% reflects, and then this steady state, this 8% reflect, reflects the fact that some of those unemployed people are going through a modification program, are having some prolonged spells of unemployment in the past, and that's um, impacting their skills. Um, you see the um, big, there's a big difference in the, um, in the foreclosure rate. And our modification rate per quarter, it, it's about, as in the data, uh, about 1.3% per year. Within 12 months, a lot of these mortgages, uh, about 20% um, redefault. That is, people can no longer make their payments. And that's because they're, they take the modification when they're at the wall. So there's this option value to wait, and, and they do wait. It's rational for them to wait. Um, and when they wait until they're under extreme financial duress, for some of them, those people, they'll continue to get some negative shocks, and they'll ultimately default. Um, the redefault rate per cohort is really quite high over 50%. And um, uh, what's really remarkable is that this program is essentially a form of unemployment insurance. And it raises the value of, of a house. So what you see here is take a look at um, the fraction renting for the versus the fraction owning homes. So the fraction renting is 35% in this modification world. It's 60%. It's 60% in the no modification world. So having a home. And having a mod and with a modification program in place is an important for is an important form of insurance. Um, okay, so again, I mentioned that our reductions in um, our modifications in the model are relatively generous. So they're about sixty three percent versus about thirty five to forty percent in the data. So that's why I think the the fifty the fifty basis points is probably somewhat of an upper bound. Um, in terms of survival probabilities of whether you stay current on the mortgage or not, this is survival probability in the data. Um, here's those modifications in which the payments decreased, all modifications, and those modifications when the payments actually increased. And you see that over two years, all types of these modifications, relatively few survive. And that's the, uh, that's the same in our model.
um, after, after two years, only about 35% survive. Okay, I'm gonna spend a couple minutes just talking about this turbulence experiment. So there's a picture of unemployment. What we did is exogenously destroy a lot of jobs. So we jumped the unemployment rate up to about 8.5%. And then we asked what happens, and this is just one time only. We could, have had, we could have had several periods of higher unemployment um, to make it look less choppy, but, but you'll sort of get the intuition here. This is a world without modifications, and this is a world with modifications. And what you see is a gap, a gap between unemployment in the modification world and unemployment in the no modification world. So here there's more people. So the, here there's people exiting houses. They have no alternative. And some of them are going to the uh, uh, alternative labor market where job prospects are somewhat better. Here's what happens to skill levels between um, the employed and uh, the employed without modifications, the employed with modifications. You see about an 8% gap in skills. And again, you see a gap in skills for the unemployed as well, for the exact same reason. And, this, and so output in this world, output, uh, output in this world is lower because there's less employment and there's also lower productivity among workers. So again, about 50 basis points of, of higher unemployment and about 1% lower output. Most people take modifications immediately. These are people who had high DTIs and, and were unemployed. So now they're at the wall and they're taking them. But again, you, st you see modifications continuing you know, quite even, even, two years, even two years afterwards. So again, the, the insurance component is important. Okay, one minute. Um, uh, Redefaults, so I'll pass on that. Renting, um, in the no modification world, we have a lot more exit, so we have a lot more renters, and that's that black line. Um, in terms of kind of thinking about, um, you know, 50 basis points of unemployment, and again, that's probably an upper bound. It might be closer to 25 or 30 once we, once we change calibration a little bit. This is a picture uh, that shows um, Change, percent changes in unemployment over 2010 across metropolitan statistical areas um, over HAMP, this HAMP, uh, the home, at, home Affordability Modification Program. You see a slightly upward, uh, uh, upward relationship. Um, so I think if we were claiming, you know, the difference between 9% and 5% unemployment this, is, this, is coming from this policy, this kind of picture would be, a, would be a problem for that story. We're thinking half a percent or perhaps less. Another way of thinking about that is, um, you know, in 2009, there, um, this policy was intended for those who are sort of on the cusp or in foreclosure or, or near foreclosure. You know, depending on how you think about number of adults in, in homes, there's probably five to six million individuals in homes in this category. Um, so we're talking about half a percent of unemployment, about 750,000 people. So that's going to be roughly about 12% of the working age adults in that affected pool of individuals, about 12% are going to be impacted by this policy in terms of unemployment. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and finish up. So the goal of this policy, uh, with a lot of policies adopted, was to keep borrowers in their home and prop up home prices. Um, you know, this, this conference is about, is about policy, so I think a better policy to support home prices would have been to increase skilled immigration, increase the demand for homes. Um, and, you know, our view is that it's not necessarily good to keep people in their homes. Um, but if that was the goal of policy, uh, if that was the goal of policy, a better approach would be to write down mortgages and not make uh, modification policy contingent or means tested on current income. 
Um, you know, why, why, relatively few, why relatively few homeowners took out this program? I mean, it's a great program. It's a great program. They, it's, it's a wonderful program. You know, you can only do it one time. So the option value is, uh, is why there are a few modifications. And the option value also is why many, many are unsuccessful. If we didn't have that limit on who could modify, we have people down to five cents of income that are walking into modified that have literally infinite debt to income ratios. Um, so policy is unemployment insurance and, and a subsidized unemployment. Um, this relocation distortion is not the main reason why unemployment is so high today. Um, and what we're working on is this job dis acceptance distortion in which people have an incentive to keep their income low during a long period of time in which there's a trial. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry I went over, Jeff. No problem. Thank you very much. Uh, first discussant, Lee John Leahy. Do Bob to make it big. You want control. Bob's our technical expert on control L. No, this is PowerPoint. F just F five. Okay, there we go. Excellent. And clicker. Uh, Hello. Okay. So um, if you uh, look around the country, the state of the macro economy today, I mean, the three imbalances kind of really stand out. The labor markets are out of whack. Housing markets are out of whack and fiscal policies out of whack. And so I think the authors really need to be commended for taking on two of these big three in this paper. I mean, these are all interconnected problems, housing, fiscal policy, unemployment. And, uh, and so these are important questions. In some sense, if I'm going to, my main criticism of the paper is that uh, they've kind of taken a chip off the block of unemployment and a chip off the block of housing. And these, both these problems are just much, much much larger. I mean, as their numbers, I mean, they would be the first to admit that half a percent doesn't explain unemployment in the U.S. economy. Um, so my comments, I'm going to focus on just describing what they did and a few comments about housing. And then Bob, I think, is going to focus on, on, on the labor markets in some sense. Okay. So... It worked? Oh, excellent. So here's their argument. So first of all, the, so the paper reads, the first part of the paper is that the current recession is like a mini depression um, rather than a typical post-war recession. And the main thing is that it's more of a permanent shock than you know, the mean reversion we're used to seeing in, in other post-war recessions. And then they go back to their previous work and talk about how they've explained uh, this with, uh, with unions and cartels, slowing the labor market and recovery in the 1930s. And they try to import this technology to, uh, to the current, but then they have a negative technology shock. This doesn't, uh, doesn't work. And so they search, they search for you know, a current policy that can work, and this is where they bring housing into the picture. And so then they did construct a model to evaluate uh, the possibility that mortgage modification is playing a similar role today, and they find a modest contribution, one half to one, one, one quarter to one percent uh, increase in unemployment. Oops, backwards. Okay. So here's the first part of their argument that this recession looks like a permanent shock. I'll just summarize it with this picture. It's uh, GDP, and uh, as we see, um, we seem to be on a trend. And now we seem to be on a lower trend. So that's the beginning of the paper. 
Um, all of their stats are basically recreating this picture because what they do is they increase this at a, at, a, at a constant growth rate and then just document, you know, what, that there's been no mean reversion on the way up. So that's the beginning. The second part, um, this is the picture they would have liked to have gotten, I think, if they were going to write their dream paper. And this is the unemployment rate. I didn't have today's numbers when I did this. So um, this is a month out of date. This is last month's unemployment rate. And then uh, Treasury uh, published the number of hemp modifications um, for the third quarter in 2010. That's all I could get on state level modification data. And so I just graphed states and unemployment. And you see um, this huge upward slope. And this is probably all reverse causation, right? That unemployed people tend to default on their homes. So then what I decided to do was look at the change. So hemp came in in 2009, phased in slowly. So I took the midpoint in 2009 and looked at the change in unemployment rate on state modifications. And uh, this looks much more like a cloud um, if you look really closely, the regression line is slightly upward sloping. And again, if you think that much of this is reverse causation, it kind of gives you an upper bound on what the effect that they should be getting out of the model, and it's probably in the neighborhood of their quarter to 1%. Um, if, if all of this was from modifications onto, uh, onto unemployment. So the picture's totally consistent with their, with their model. Okay, so then what do they do, the model? So I'll just go through it. I spent most of my last week um, trying to figure out the model. Um, it has, I think, do you, is it quarterly? Monthly. Monthly. So they have about 25,000 states in their Markov chain. So keeping track of everything is kind of a Herculean task. And uh, um, I'm glad they didn't send me their code um, so here's how it works. So they build a model with the following features. It starts off with there's exogenous offer and destruction rates. And then there's this skill ladder. If you're unemployed, your skills tend to deteriorate. If you're employed, your skills tend to, to, to rise. And uh, that's going to be a multiplier in their framework. When they raise the unemployment rate, that's going to then, um, that's going to then cause skills to reduce, which is going to amplify the effect of labor markets on, on GDP. Then there's three decisions. Every period, destructions and offers are exogenous, but you always have the choice to work or not. So that's endogenous. There's, there's quits, endogenous quits in the world. So you can always reject an offer, or on a job, you can reject the offer you had. Then you have a choice of whether to pay your mortgage, modify your default, and then, and their modification is just simply modeled as a reduction in interest payments. That's all that happens when you modify. You just get a better deal. So everyone's going to want to modify in this world. Everybody wants a deal. Um, and then there's a cost to entering the default state there. And then you have a final choice, stay or move. And uh, key assumption is that the worker's job finding rate increases if you move to another market. So this is essentially a bathtub model of unemployment. The unemployment rate is going to be the separation rate divided by the separation plus the job finding rate. And what they're going to try to do is figure out a way to get the job finding rate to fall. And they get it to fall by, by having people face less, uh, less uh, favorable odds of finding a job because they're locked into this bad labor market and don't get to move to a better labor market. 
And now you have to default to move because, well, as I'll show you the transitions in a second, how they work. Okay, so here's like the states, the big, there's big states and small states. Here are the big states a person could find themselves in. They could be working or they could be unemployed. They could have a current mortgage, a modified mortgage, or they could have defaulted in the past. Those are the, the six big states. Then there are lots of small states. Your skill level, your actual payments on your mortgage. Do you have 20 years left, 15 years and four months? What your interest rate is? That's where you get multiply this by uh, about 40,000 know, in each of these. And that gives you all this huge state space. Now, within a period, you can always choose to move to what I'll call a worse state. If you're employed, you can become unemployed. If you're current, you can modify. If you modify, you can default. And since if you're current, you can modify and modify, you can default, you can always default if you're current. So you can just, within a period, just shift like that. That's what all the value functions are doing. Now, across periods, these are the transitions. And these are all exogenous. So you can, workers can become unemployed, unemployed people become workers. And then there's these movements here, which is if you default, you could be readmitted to the mortgage market, but only with a modified mortgage. You never can get back to the state of grace um, over here in which you, you, know, you never defaulted. There's no return to this state. And these red states are interesting because these are the states in which you switch islands and you increase your job finding rate. So you, this is the key state in the entire model. The number of people here determines the job, aggregate job finding rate. And if you can get more people into this state, then the job finding rate goes up and the unemployment rate goes down. All the other states are kind of unimportant for as far as uh, um, less important. This one's the one that drives most of their model. And so it's going to be really, if you can get people to default, then they're going to move. And modifications reduce default. And if they reduce default, they lock people in. That's the way the model works. Okay, so the main results, allowing modifications reduces defaults, and hence mobility. Reduction in mobility re, uh, reduces the aggregate job finding rate. Reduction in the job finding rate reduces skills, thereby reducing mobility further. Uh, mechanism can explain a half a percent and increase in unemployment. Okay, so what I'm going to do, the reason for going through the model is now I have a background. I can make a whole bunch of comments and observations on how it works. And, and these are going to be mainly in the in the framework I said is that the issues are just much bigger than what's captured in this model. Okay, so observations. First, every mortgage holder in this model wants to modify. And this is actually the one cool result is uh, why they don't. Well, some are prevented by law. You can only modify if you meet the debt to income threshold. But most of them don't modify because there's this option value of waiting. And in the model, as, as Lee said, people wait until the last second to modify. All of their increase in unemployment is actually, um, most of their increases is, is, among, is among homeowners. 
um, and it's homeowners that haven't modified because this group is just hanging on and hanging on and hanging on, not defaulting, waiting for the optimal time to modify, and then then they modify. Transitions among the people who modify is fairly similar in their to, in, to, uh, to the steady state in their first framework. Now, what this ignores is it ignores all the other costs of modifications. Um, you know, that uh, modified mortgages actually affect your credit score. Uh, many of the modifications in this data set are forbearance on the part of lenders. So you're already 90%, 90 days past due, and uh, the, the mortgage lender just really doesn't want to take, take over you know, ownership of the house, and so you're in a pretty bad state. Um, but, you know, so many people, you know, want to protect their credit score. Also, many people, I guess, I was thinking of, as I'd like, um, Professor Detella's uh, comment that he was, who was one that was brought up well by their parents? That was you. Yeah, some people were just brought up by their parents to pay off their debts, and so that's also in here, you know, um, under this. Uh, I don't, so the costs aren't there um, in that sense. That's my first observation. Second observation is there's two reasons for default in the model. One is to escape from flow payments. A lot of people default just because they can't afford their houses. Uh, I think Bob was retiring before. He called this the phone call reason for default. And they call you up and tell you you've defaulted. Um, the other is that you want to default to gain an opportunity to move in this model, because you can only move to another island if you're in this default state. Well, this is also mo missing a third reason for default is that your mortgage is underwater. There's no real sense. When I described the model, I never mentioned house prices. They're really not in the model. There's really no underwater mortgages in the model. And given that there's no undermined mortgage, there's no role for negative, negative equity as a reason for default, a reason for modification, or a reason for sclerosis in the mar markets at all. Third observation. Default as it's modeled is actually a good outcome in this model because you have to default to move and you have to move to get this high job finding rate. So, I mean, obviously you don't want to take the model completely literally because the, the policy implication is everyone should default so that everyone can find good jobs and GDP can, be can rise. So there's clearly things that are missing, and the authors know this. I'm not telling them anything they don't know here. Um, it'd be nice to incorporate some of the costs of default. I mean, why do we have, why are we trying to prop up house prices? Why are we trying to modify? We're afraid of our banking sector and the implications there. We're worried about the effects of fire sales and house prices, and then the effects that this would have on other mortgages and other borrowers, and then what the other borrowers are doing, would there be contagion, would there be spillovers? I mean, it'd be nice to know and have a model of those sorts of things, of the spillovers of these things. And we also worry about the effects of, uh, I mean, essentially, I mean, right now, most mortgages are being insured by the federal government, so default is also fairly costly um, for, uh, for the budget in that sense. Um, last thing, um, the models, as it's calibrate, calibrated, ignores the huge decline in mortgage interest rates that have occurred in the U.S. So they calibrate their model to uh, the observed decline in payments that we see in the data, and they get some number like uh, 60%. Um, but many modifications, so, but two, two observations. One is that many, that 
many of these people have the option of refinancing outside and getting lower rates, you know, getting four and a half percent. I think that's what Steve says he can get now. I mean, I don't think he's the only one who can get that rate. Um, and uh, so really the benchmark is not, you know, where's your by paying six and I'm reducing to two, but it's four and a half potentially. And then there's people, a lot of the modifications we see are people who were underwater and they're getting opportunities that were available to everyone else. So is that a change, is that a modification or not? I mean, if you give somebody a FHA streamlined refinance, I mean, they're basically extending to an underwater person the opportunity that Steve just took to get four and a half. I mean, that's also, so one has to be, it's actually a really hard model to calibrate because there's so many different programs with so many different rules, and nobody really knows the default rates on these things, or the federal government doesn't even know the default rates on, on, on these loans. They, uh, they have this trial, they don't even call something a modification until you've paid for six months, and then you modify, and then you default with 30 to 50% probability. Well, 50% of the people didn't even get through the trial phase. And so the default rate's really something like, you know, 50 to 75%. And then, you know, with FHA, when they do, when they do streamlined refinances, they treat all of their streamlined refinances as successes, whereas a large portion of those default in the future. And it's kind of like you're in, a, you're in an emergency room and you've got a patient, he's about to die. You then shift him over to hospice and you declare that a successfully paid off mortgage, and then he dies in hospice care. And so the data is really hard to tease through, and there are not many, not many people who have data sets that can track people and their credit experiences. Almost all the data is at the loan level. So replacing one loan with another loan is called success, just as replacing the emergency room with hospice care would be called a success, even though it's one person and the person did die. So just calibrating this stuff is very difficult. But they, they, took, a, they, they took a heroic um, uh, attempt. Last, I would say, in their model, refinancing would also increase the unemployment rate. Because if you refinance, you don't default. If you don't default, you don't enter that state that you can move. You don't enter the state of move. You don't, uh, the unemployment rate rises. So, um, so and I don't know if, any, if we believe this in the same way. So I don't know where the disconnect is, but something needs to be figured out there. Closing comments. Oh, well, what is missing? Um, equilibrium. There's no house prices, no savings decision, no wages, no house purchase decision. There's no debt overhang, banking sector. I talked most about these things. Let's talk about the housing market. And basically what we've seen in the last three or four years is a massive effort to support house prices in the US economy. Um, Fannie, Freddie, and FHA are backing something like 90% of all new mortgages issued. I mean, that's a large portion. It's a large market. Um, we had an increase in conforming loan limits, Federal Reserve MBS purchases, home buyer tax credits, and then mortgage modification is just a part of this huge, big, um, big plan. And, and it doesn't, I, should, I used the wrong word there. Plan was not the right word. Um, because it doesn't exactly seem part of a plan. It's more of a part of delay strategy. It's the same way we dealt with the Latin American debt crisis. We just rolled it over, rolled it over, rolled it over. Seven years later, the banks were on their feet, and then you could pass the Brady Plan. 
and then you could solve the problem. It's postponing the problem, hoping the economy improves, and then the problem goes away. And it'd be nice to have a plan. So I actually liked your last slide the best. It was, the, it, was, it was fantastic. It raised all the right questions. You know, what is the way, optimal way to modify mortgages? What are the costs and benefits of these? It'd be nice to have a GE model in which you had the federal government budget, the risks that the federal government, the, risk, the federal government's taking on large tail risk, and the risks that the federal government is taking, what's the benefit that they think they're getting, what is the, how's the banking sector, in, in, I mean, this, I'm, I'm very, being very ambitious here, so I don't expect you to do this in the rewrite. Um, the, uh, the banking sector, and just have this model and be able to evaluate different programs for just getting us out of this housing, housing quandary that we're in, because we're gonna to have to unwind this federal participation in the housing market to something more balanced and closer to historical um, and just saying, you know, and, and, and just saying it needs to get to point B, it's a big question, how do you move from point A to B? And that's, uh, that needs a lot more work. And this paper is just one small contribution to that uh, bigger overriding goal. Anyway, I, it was in, it, you'd be commended for starting us on the path. Thank you very much. Second discussion is Bob Hall. Okay, so uh, this is a very interesting assignment and a very interesting paper. Um, I think the, the basic philosophy of this is one that I'm totally in tune with, uh, and it's what I call the Amy Finkelstein approach to solving uh, public policy analysis problems. If Amy has put out a series of papers that have a very similar structure, uh, in particular her AER paper on uh, long-term, the, the effects of Medicare on uh, killing the market for private long-term care insurance is, has exactly the same structure as, as this paper. That is, you build a uh, dynamic programming model of the household, um, and then you let it run, uh, and then you let it run again in a counterfactual, um, and then you find the causal effect of, of a program. Um, and that seems like exactly the right way to, to attack these problems. And here, I believe it's completely novel. As far as I know, although there's been a lot of commentary, uh, a lot of measurement of the mortgage modification uh, program and a lot of criticism, um, there no, no analysis that I'm aware of. Um, I, I confess I know almost everything about mortgages from my wife. Um, uh, who is a true expert on this subject. Um, so I may have missed something, but uh, I'll, I'll check with her tonight. Um, okay, so, so what am I gonna, I, I'm, I'm not gonna try to repeat. I, I, I considered doing what John just did, which is to stare at the 
the transition equations, the uh, Bellman equations of the model, and figure out exactly how the model worked. And I said, well, there's got to be something else I can do besides that. And then when <laughs> I learned that it took John all week, I decided that was quite wise. So I think the coverage of your two discussants is, is appropriate. So I'm going to do two things. The first thing I'm going to do is, is look at some research uh, that's much more quantitative on this basic big issue, which is um, which has received a lot of discussion, as to whether there's an interaction between uh, chaos in the in the housing market uh, and uh, and whether that's reverberated in increasing unemployment. So in some sense, it's the same topic, although. Uh, this paper does break new ground in terms of, of sort of what it's looking at because uh, the question raised there mostly was uh, are people locked in by underwater mortgages uh, which prevents them from uh, searching in, in the most advantageous market because uh, they can't uh, sell a house that's underwater without uh, some kind of a, uh, some kind of assistance. Uh, and therefore, they're locked into a geographic area. Um, many people have gotten, many labor people have, have gotten excited about that, and they've all gone through the same process, uh, which is to say, oh, that's, that could be really important. Let's look at the numbers. Uh, Rob Scheimer, in particular, uh, went through this, uh, and uh, I was in touch with him on, as, as he was doing it. And, and then finally, he, like so many people, decided that, well, it was no very big deal. Um, that when you finally look at just sort of what the normal amount of, of, of geographic mobility is and, uh, and then what's happened to that amount, uh, you, you find that, that it's probably not a big deal. And I think some of that reflects onto this paper. And of course, this paper in some ways is a contribution because the one half of 1% is a pretty small number when we're looking at, a, at uh, currently uh, with the unemployment rate as of today is 9.1%. Uh, so we're in the vicinity of uh, four to five percentage points above uh, the normal unemployment rate. So the half percent is important, but but it's certainly not the major cause. So I'm going to do so. First of all, I'm going to go over some of just show you some results from that other research, um, and then I'm going to turn to the question of looking at this from sort of the other point of view, and that is. Uh, do you find in the labor market that there's something unusual happening uh, today or, or over the last three years that uh, somehow calls out for something other than just a normal application of the tried and true principles of analyzing turnover and unemployment relative to measure movements of other variables? And the answer is unambiguously yes. Um, there's just no doubt uh, that uh, the labor market is not generating new matches with the same enthusiasm given, uh, given the driving forces in the labor market as, as modern turnover theory teaches us. So, so this mission is really important. Um, it's probably going to turn out to be the summation of a lot of things, including some contribution from uh, inhibited mobility, uh, geographic mobility that then prevents people from moving. But, but my hunch is that it's going to be quite a few different things. Uh, and uh, Steve Davis has been, is Steve still here? Yeah, great. OK, so I hope you'll say a little bit later about the work that you've done in that area, because uh, 
because I think that's very significant. Okay, so so here's some papers. Uh, just go over these quickly. Um, and uh, if you're interested in pursuing this, these slides will be on my website uh, tomorrow. Um, so here's a bunch of papers that I was able to track down by looking at references, and some of these I knew about already. Uh, Scheimer doesn't appear here because uh, I don't think his paper ever saw the light of day. He he realized that it wasn't a big enough part of the story, so I don't think he's ever actually posted anything on his website on this subject, so he's not there. Um, okay, so I'm going to pose some questions that are not directly questions necessarily that deal with this paper, but rather ones that uh, would call to anyone who wanted to think about this relationship between uh, housing, geographic mobility, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the behavior of unemployment and other measures of, of, uh, of labor market uh, issues. Um, so the first one is, well, what's happened to mobility? Is there, is there a strong effect, or is there only a weak effect? And uh, because we have up-to-date, you know, re essentially real-time measures of geographic mobility in the current population survey. Um, so this is an answerable question. Uh, all right, so, so this paper, which is, this is a group of three Stanford graduate students, uh, and their work is very much ongoing, and, and uh, they're very receptive to any suggestions about where it should go and uh, how it can be improved. Um, but uh, these are uh, comparing... Uh, moving rates, uh, these mobility is defined as moving across a state line. That's not the ideal measure, but it's a measure that's in this EPS. Um, and the first amazing thing, and I had no idea of this, but uh, geographic mobility is on a very strong downward trend, sufficiently strong that you wouldn't want to draw any conclusions uh, just comparing, uh, say, the three years of the, of the slump uh, without making an adjustment uh, for it's true that mobility has declined, but generally speaking, what you see here uh, is that uh, the mobility of, of homeowners uh, has been on a steep downward path. Uh, it became steeper before the roof fell in. Um, and uh, it's, um, uh, so the green, this, this is, uh, the mobility of, uh, so the green is renters and the blue is uh, owners. So owners' mobility has continued, but actually it's flattened out. It, isn't, it hasn't fallen as much uh, in, uh, in recent years uh, as it did right before uh, the contraction began. Now, one thing you have to be careful about is that uh, the real estate contraction began sometime in 2006. So. You shouldn't necessarily take, I don't know who's responsible for these gray areas, but they don't apply directly, <laughs> directly to, uh, to the real estate market. If you did a, if you did a chronology of, the, of real estate, you'd have the real estate recession beginning quite a bit earlier. So that may be part of the story. All right, so uh, now you can see that on the other hand, mobility jumped up for renters. Uh, so there's some kind of a story going on here. If you, if you wanted to, and one of the ideas of this paper is to compare renters and, and owners. Um, and uh, so you can see that there is, if you took renters to be kind of a benchmark, which was not inhibited by these ownership issues, uh, then there has been a gap opening up. So, so it's this, these numbers are are ambiguous, I would say, but not fatal to the notion that uh, 
that there was some inhibition. But it would require a belief that, contrary to the, to the unambiguous trend here downward, that uh, sort of the benchmark for owners should have gone up during these years, and that's a bit dicey. Uh, so that's, that's, that's sort of the first step. Uh, and then this other paper by uh, Sachs and Wozniak uh, uh, does, uh, it, it compares uh, the inter-county numbers, which of course are much higher, uh, and the interstate uh, numbers. Uh, and you can see that uh, there is a decline. Uh, they, they find essentially nothing uh, in, the, uh, in the crossing state line numbers, uh, but they do find, uh, I think, a somewhat unusual decline uh, locally, and that sort of and that sort of makes sense. Um, uh, so, uh, so the, in other words, there are people. There hasn't been necessarily an inhibition in the very low rates. I guess another thing that comes out of this is that the kind of mobility that presumably matters for people moving to a more favorable labor market is, I believe, interstate. Uh, and the base level of interstate mobility is extremely low. Very few people uh, move from one state to another. Uh, in any given year. So, uh, so that's another thing to keep in mind, and that's been an important. So it, what can mobility do if, it's, if a fall in mobility, if it falls from, from a, a level of around 2% per year, uh, it's just a, it, just, it doesn't seem to have much capacity for, for uh, lubricating the labor market. It's just not an important feature. And that's, that's been a finding of earlier research. Um, uh, there's a very well-known paper by Blanchard and Katz, in particular, that stressed that finding. Um, uh, okay, so then the next question is, well, how does this interact with unemployment? Uh, what's going to matter here is the mobility that would allow someone who's lost a job to, to move to a market that provided more jobs, like North Dakota. Um, and so it would be very interesting to know the answer to that, and that goes back to uh, these numbers that, from the, the first paper. Um, and uh, here we see, and again, there, this, the basic research idea in this paper is to compare renters and homeowners, um, and you can see that uh, the, uh, the mobility rate for unemployed homeowners has declined, um, but on the other hand, uh, the, the uh, same thing's true of the moving rate for renters. Again, I call attention to the fact that there's a sharp downward trend in all these mobility numbers. Um, so, so again, there's a hint of support for the notion that there's an interaction between uh, geographic mobility and uh, labor market mobility. Uh, but after adjusting for trend, which you could do, for example, by looking at the differential to uh, renters, uh, then uh, it's not a huge deal, but maybe it's there. In other words, I don't, I don't regard any of these things as fatal to the hypothesis. All of it seems to add up to the notion that it's somewhat ambiguous and perhaps not very large, uh, which is very harmonious with, uh, the, with the findings in this paper. So Sachs and Wozniak have a similar uh, finding um, uh, that uh, unemployment has just a small effect. Um, okay, the third question is... Uh, uh, People move for lots of different reasons, uh, and uh, there is a question, did you move for, for a job reason? And it's, it's worth looking at that. But again, these results are not going to be dispositive and not by no means fatal to, uh, to the ideas of this paper and the related literature. Um, and uh, 
Well, it turns out that as a general matter, uh, uh, moving for job reasons is not a, not a very big deal. So if you think, so the, the logic of looking at this, uh, which I think Kyle's gonna, has some slides even to tell us that uh, we, we shouldn't just scale everything down by these numbers, and I'm sure I agree with that. Uh, but it, the, the logic of this is that uh, in normal times, if, if in normal times you see lots of people, the job changes are the reason that people moved across state lines, uh, then, and then that were inhibited by, by the freezing up of, of geographic mobility because people were underwater, uh, then, then, so this number is relevant, I think, uh, but not dispositive. And the answer is, uh, you know, about one person in six says that they moved uh, uh, for a job-related reason. Interesting, because I think you generally imagine that a lot of mobility has that form. A lot of people working for big corporations or the military get transferred, and, and then they have to move. But that's not what people say. That only one person in six says that's the reason they moved across the state line. Uh, uh, and then finally, uh, no, I guess this is the next last question. Fourth question is, is mobility lower among underwater homeowners? That's, that would be the absolutely central issue here. Is being underwater an inhibition to uh, uh, mobility? And this, uh, this paper uh, uh, attacks that uh, with a probit model of, uh, of, uh, um, uh, of the reason, so it looks at all mobility and then puts in a negative equity uh, dummy variable uh, and does get a small negative effect, but th these are, are, are the, um, so this says that there's a 20 basis point probability effect. Uh, so it's, it's uh, and it's not statistically unambiguous uh, in the first equation, in the second one it is, uh, but they're relatively small. Um, but not, not to be ignored, and I guess if you believe in their, their IV structure, which I certainly have not studied, then this is beginning to get you somewhere. But again, so it's a, a small and measurable uh, uh, effect, and that seems to again be the, the theme of this literature, is that you can, you can find some signs that this is an issue, but if you add it all up, uh, it's not such a big deal. Um, and. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, in this paper, which I think Kyle is going to demolish as well, correct, <laughs> um, uh, is, uh, it comes out with the opposite uh, uh, finding uh, that uh, uh, there's more, there's more mo mobility, or about the same mobility, I should say. Uh, you got 11% uh, among those with non-negative equity and 10%. There's no standard errors here, no test of whether that's a significant difference, and I suspect it's not. So again, that's supportive of the notion that there's not a big deal. Um, okay, and then the fifth question is, is, is well, can you, can you say anything about the effect of this on unemployment? Now, uh, uh, today's paper uh, is the only one that takes a really serious, respectable approach to that to build a structural model of the relationship and solve it out. Uh, other work in this area has been uh, much more indicative, uh, and particularly this, this Kothari paper um, argues, um, and with I'm not sure total success, that, uh, that you can get a bound 
without having to build a model. Uh, and the bound is very small. Uh, uh, it's uh, single basis points of um, unemployment. Um, okay, so so what I get out of that is that the paper, the, the paper's conclusion of one half of one percent is, is sort of in line with the notion that there's something there, but it's not a big deal. So uh, it's not in any way that these facts are are, uh, are an issue. Of course, there's no, this paper is original in the question it poses, which is not whether the freezing up of the of the, the counterfactual is not the freezing up, but rather only the absence of the freezing up that's occurred because of HAMP. Um, and that's a different question, and that's a, that is that is the Finkelstein type question. That is, there's a there's a program there. Let's analyze the program. Uh, let's be clear that the counterfactual is the absence of a policy and not the absence of a phenomenon. So the world can't make the phenomenon go away, but we do have a choice about policy. So uh, the paper is on the right track in that respect. Okay. So in my remaining time, whatever that might be. Okay. Okay. I think I can do that. But uh, I've this. I see that this paper has just incredible, interesting detail on the housing side, and then it has a very sketchy, I would say casual, uh, theory of unemployment. Uh, so those of us who've, who've been uh, thinking about the unemployment issue for a long time, I think feel that there's, there's something that's really important that's left out. And I think to, to be most specific about that, I mean, there's lots of differences, uh, but to be most specific, the, the Diamond Mortensen Pissaridis uh, approach to thinking about this issue, which, which is the dominant approach. This, the, the Sergeant Lundquist has never really gotten a toehold uh, in this literature. It's always been just kind of a side issue, um, and, and for good reason, and that is it lacks a theory of endogenous tightness. Uh, and that's really the centerpiece to make tightness a coherent notion of theory rather than just something we know is there but we don't know how to model. I mean, that was the huge contribution that, that the the Diamond Mortensen and Pizzeridis uh, theory. So I think it's really important to, I would, I would urge the adoption of a more mainstream theory of, of the labor market side of this research and, and drop the, um, the peculiarities of, uh, of the uh, Lundquist-Sargent approach. Um, okay, so, uh, so I already said that. Uh, and if you're, if you're interested in this particular topic of how a, the DMP model relates to a personal dynamic program. My 2009 JPE paper tackled that question. It's sort of obvious that it's right because the, the DMP model has, it has Bellman equations but no dynamic program the way it's normally explained. Well, you can reverse engineer the, the uh, dynamic program from the Bellman equations, but so far as I know, at least in terms of publications, that's not been done. But if you want to see how to do it, it's in my JP paper. Um, okay, finally, uh, I have a new paper which you're invited to read. It's the, the main point of it is not going to come through in what I say now. But uh, the, what I'm going to say now is just to, I think, I think I've got the right way to demonstrate and try to convince you that there is something special going on in the labor market now that is a departure from received beliefs, especially uh, the basic structure of the DMP model. So here's the DMP model in its simplest possible form. Everyone else teaching or talking about the DMP model writes down a whole bunch of Bellman equations, and it gets quite complicated. But it, it essentially misses, you don't need to do that. Uh, and and the, the reason they do that is that they, they want to portray 
the implications of a Nash wage bargain. But since there's quite compelling evidence, as Scheimer pointed out, that, that the, the bargain can't be Nash, there's really no point in doing that. If you say non-Nash, then, then you, there's just no reason to write down all those complicated equations. You can do something very simple, and that is to say, fundamentally, the bargain in the labor market is going to be a two-part pricing arrangement. It's going to be workers get paid their marginal product, and the, the market power of both sides, and it's a two-sided market power problem, it's a bilateral bargaining problem, uh, the market power is extracted in the form of a lump sum, as in standard in two-part pricing. You can also think of this as an Edgeworth box problem, where the parties must uh, make an efficient bargain on the contract curve, and then they, they divide the surplus uh, through a lump sum. That's a standard uh, Edgeworth box problem. So either way you like to think about this, you get the same answer. So there's what I call a job value, which uh, is the part of the surplus that goes to the employer. Uh, and so then you get a very simple zero profit condition, which is one of the two central equations of the DMP model, just says the recruiting success probability per period times the capital gain, the share of the surplus that an employer gets, per period is equal to the cost of recruiting to fill a job for one period. So this is the zero profit condition. And if you, knew, if you know J, if you know how, how much workers are con compensating employers for, for this contract, uh, then you can figure out H of U, and then you can invert H to get U. So that's, that's the essence of, of the received theory of unemployment. Um, and notice that it, it makes the whole concept of, of tightness endogenous in a fundamental way as opposed to uh, in, the, in today's paper. Uh, uh, it's actually just the, the, only, the only reason unemployment changes is this question of, of whether you visit a market with a high job finding rate or a low job finding rate, but those rates in those markets are exogenous. But here it's endogenous. That's the huge difference, and I think it's really important and central to, to, to doing this right. So I would highly recommend that a step like this be taken. Okay, then, so then, well, where does J come from? J is obviously an endogenous variable. Well, the answer is that there's some kind of wage determination system. Uh, wage determination typically refers to the tightness of the labor market measured by the unemployment rate. And then there's some other variables. Productivity is the one that the literature has always emphasized. Uh, so, so here's, if you read Mortensen P. Reedy's 1994, which is the canon of this literature, they don't have this diagram. And when I showed this to Dale, he said, oh, that's not the right diagram. But I think I'm standing by it. I think it is the right diagram. Uh, so here, and it's a calibrated diagram. Um, uh, you have this relatively low slope to the uh, zero profit uh, function, um, and you have um, uh, this function, which depends on the horizontal axis, but it also depends on productivity p. If productivity falls, then and there's a little bug in this, but there's, these should be actual literal intersections. Then you get a decline uh, in the unemployment rate. Uh, so this is this would be the right way to, to analyze um, uh, the uh, uh, this problem. Um, it turns out that uh, it's the zero profit uh, function that probably we should be thinking about in terms of of um, the the if, so the recruiting effect. That's fine. Uh, the, that the the shift that we're looking for is probably a shift uh, in the zero profit uh, function. 
so, so that's where we should probably look. Uh, and we have the data from jolts um, in particular. Um, uh, we can measure J just by solving for J. If we know H, which we can read directly out of, uh, out of um, uh, jolts, so J, H is the hiring rate, uh, the rate at which vacancies are filled, gamma is the cost of maintaining a vacancy. Well, there's a literature on that. It's $66 a day. Um, and so we can just divide uh, H into 66, and then we get a dollar amount, uh, J. Uh, um, and uh, we measure H directly from jolts by looking at the flow of hires and divide by the stock of vacancies and divide by 21 to put it on a daily basis. Um, so here it is. Uh, and you can see, so the, what I did was to fit a parametric function to the hiring rate uh, estimated on data through 2008. Um, so the within sample fit, which is this light pink against the red, uh, is very good. We've had a pretty consistent uh, uh, agreement uh, of, the, of those variables, the, the, joint, the joint distribution of uh, the variables uh, considered here uh, was pretty much on track. Then we see a major departure uh, during, the, during the recent period. It's this departure. This is, I think, the right way to think about this problem as opposed to those who try to embed it in the beverage curve, uh, which is potentially uh, the wrong way to do it um, because the, the beverage curve is not uh, a, a stable phenomenon. Now, many other people have looked at matching efficiency, and that, that would be another perfectly appropriate way to do this. Um, and again, they reached the conclusion that matching efficiency has declined uh, recently. Uh, if you... Uh, Plot, I guess, no, I can just include this one, okay. So this is the last slide. Um, and you can see this remarkable difference. So here's how the world worked. Jolt started in 2000. So, so previously, we got this slope of this relationship between uh, unemployment and the uh, job value. Uh, and then very consistently, and this diagram shows it better, I think, than, than others, that it was from the very beginning in 2008 we didn't really become conscious of this until the beverage curve looked, started to go crazy in the middle of 2009. Uh, but you can see, actually, that it's pretty clear that the slope here is different from this slope. Uh, and it and results in there being higher unemployment. This lies to the right. Um, and then it goes really haywire uh, with uh, things going absolutely vertically here, not uh, tracking anything like the... The extension, the extension of this line would look like this, and we haven't had anything like that. So, so there's 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 plenty to track down here. Uh, Steve is working uh, day and night on this problem, I think, um, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and others are too. I think there's going to be a proliferation. There already has been a proliferation of papers uh, on this topic, exploring uh, different ideas about just what's different uh, today. A lot of them, obviously. Uh, look at uh, the fact that there's so much more long-term unemployment today than there has, ever has been before. Uh, but there's people looking in other places as well, including this question of going back to the topic of this paper, which is uh, the, uh, what's happened in, to 
geographic mobility. But again, my guess from what I've seen so far is that the geographic mobility part is going to be there. It's going to be positive. It might even be one half of 1%, uh, but uh, it's not going to be the main explanation. Um, and furthermore, I guess the other thing to say is that, which this makes clear, is that a lot of what's happening here is not a structural thing that's happened in the labor market. It's simply that product demand has been low, and that reflects into the labor market and reduced demand for labor, and therefore high, uh, high unemployment. And that's always going to be the central explanation for, for high unemployment recently. Thank you very much. Um, Lee, you're going to come back. Your questions, I'll take a list, and then we'll give the authors a couple minutes. Uh, Steve and Gary. Steve, the mic's coming. Yeah, thanks. Uh, two, two quick comments, and then I'll follow up on Bob's invitation. One, um, I share Bob's view that the explanation for what's happened, the unusual behavior of labor markets in the last few years is likely to involve uh, many small things, and this may be one of them. Um, one, one thing that you dismissed as I read the paper, which I was a little surprised given your early work, is the role of wage rigidity. And uh, I don't think wage rigidity, I don't think it was any unu so extraordinary policy interventions that increased wage rigidity that on the, on, the, on the scale of what you talked about in the Great Depression. But there were two things that it seemed to me are, should be candidates to be one, one part of the story, maybe as big a part of the story as to what you've talked about here. First, there was an increase in the federal minimum wage um, uh, before the onset of the recession. Um, but second, and I don't have a sense of how important this is, but there has been, um, there were provisions in the stimulus bill, uh, prevailing wage provisions for construction spending. And I guess the issue there is to what extent has funding for construction spending shifted from private sector sources that weren't bound by those prevailing wage uh, restrictions to public sector funding that was. My guess is it was probably a pretty big shift. And so there could have been some upward uh, policy-induced upward pressure on real wages in the construction sector as well. Those two things together might add up to something as big as what you've talked about here. I, it seems to me you guys are the, are the ones to investigate that issue, uh, and I would encourage you to do so. Um, on, on the issues Bob talked about, the, uh, I agree with him. There, there are some unusual behavior, uh, very unusual things in the, in the labor market. I've looked at it mostly from a matching function perspective, so let me just relate some of what's happened there. And it's closely related to what Bob talked about. I haven't mapped quite what Bob, I haven't, I haven't read your paper yet, Bob, and I haven't mapped exactly, exactly what you did and what we've been doing. But if you, if you take a standard Cobb-Douglas matching function and you use it to back out an implied job finding rate and you compare that to what an empirical measure of the job finding rate you see in the data, um, they track each other very closely uh, through about 2007. And it's, it's, it's actually an impressive fit. And it just obviously depends on how you calibrate the matching function, but it's a standard uh, calibration. Thereafter, uh, the, the empirical job finding rate falls much more than is implied by a matching function. That's, that's one way to see the puzzle that Bob, Bob talked about. Now, one way to quantify how big that puzzle is to say, um, if you just feed through the observed standard measure of market tightness through the matching function, uh, and say compare 2006 to 2010, the, uh, the observed change in the market tightness, vacancy unemployment ratio, uh, accounts for about 60% only 
of the uh, observed change in the job finding rate. So the avenue that, that I've been going down is to, is to evaluate whether the standard measures that go into the market tightness are the right measures. Usually we just look at unemployed workers or vacant jobs. There's two, there's my work with Jason Faberman and a job, Halt, Halt, John Haltewinger tries to uh, constructs a measure of recruiting intensity per vacancy. That has declined over this period according to our measures, and that's a part of the story. The other thing that, that's happened, and I've recently discussed a paper at Brookings, where an uh, interesting paper by Alan Kruger and Andreas Mueller, where they have high-frequency longitudinal data on uh, unemployed workers, and a nice feature of their data set is they're looking at measures of search time. Uh, they document an interesting finding, which is that search time falls rather sharply uh, with unemployment spell duration. Now, if you take their estimates and you interpret search time as a measure of search efficiency uh, or search units supplied, okay, that's, that's what I meant to say, which is a natural thing. You can quibble with that, but that's a natural thing to do. You can construct a measure of, of search intensity per unemployed. That also goes a uh, considerable distance towards uh, rationalizing this puzzle. It would be very much complementary to what you're doing because one reason why workers might decide not to search as hard is because they're stuck in a, they're, they're, they're induced to stick around in a labor market where job opportunities are not very good. So there's, there's an overlap between the interpretation I've given to the Kruger-Mueller uh, work and your work. If you put the, the, the recruiting intensity measures and the search intensity per unemployed measures together, uh, depending on exactly what you assume about parameters and so on, you can get anywhere from half to two-thirds of the gap that emerges from the standard matching function approach. Gary, Hanson. Um, yeah, I just, I mean, this is just speculation, but I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, you're focusing on the uh, loan modifications uh, as you know, contributing to a slow recovery, whether it's the policies that would have led to perhaps a higher percentage of rent of uh, homeowners, you know, the one the policies that encourage home ownership and uh, subprime mortgage, <coughs> that sort of thing. Uh, since we, since you know, Bob's data showed that uh, renters are more mobile than uh, than homeowners, uh, whether that might have played a bigger role. Uh, in, say, comparing this recession with the recovery after the early 80s uh, recession. Okay, you want to take a few minutes to wrap um, it up? Sure. Well, uh, first, um, thank you for, uh, thanks for comments. Jeff, thanks for getting uh, two great discussions. So that's always, uh, that's always a pleasure. Um, so, in, um, so in terms of, uh, okay, so John made a number of comments. Um, Excellent comments, and I agree with um, most of most of what you what you said. Um, I, I agree that the data on redefaults is tough to interpret, and they may be even higher, which raises questions about you know what what, what is the efficiency of this policy. Um, so 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 I agree with that, um, and uh, yeah, and issues about um, kind of broader issues are you're obviously very very interesting. Um, so so thanks thanks for your comments. Um, and in terms of uh, in terms of Bob's comments, um, and regarding uh, you know the choices we made in terms of modeling strategy, um, so we decided to have a very rich model of the housing market, and 
In terms of uh, you know allocating resources, we went uh, a little bit uh, a little bit less on on the on the, on the unemployment. Um, and so essentially, the reason we did that is that it gave us uh, sort of a simple way to look at how policy changes incentives to accept or, or, or reject offers. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you that pursuing this in a DMP framework is is an interesting uh, is an interesting way to go. Um, in terms of discussion about the uh, uh, the mobility data, um, yeah, we, we, we spoke. We, I think we have some suggestions for uh, for Kothari, uh, and uh, it kind of boils down to how you treat uh, how you interpret people are in sort of in foreclosure. Um, I, if I interpret both discussions uh, uh, correctly, um, I think we're sort of all sort of in the ballpark of maybe about one half of one percent, maybe one quarter of one percent, something like that. Um, the uh, from this re from, from this relocation uh, component. Um, in terms of uh, yeah, in terms of Steve's comments, um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not aware of the Kruger Milieu paper, so we'll certainly pursue that. Um, and uh, and I don't dismiss the uh, yeah, I mean, the paper didn't really discuss the wage rigidity argument, but I think there's interesting components to that. Um, I think I read on Mink, I don't know. I believe I read on, read on Mankey's blog that over half of the increase in unemployment, I mean, he cited another paper, over half the increase in unemployment in the current recession was, was, within, was among people that I think had wages that were $10 per hour or less. Um, and this issue about the minimum wage I think is important. Um, and, and that is something actually I think we can put in here quite easily, uh, the change in the minimum wage. Um, so I'm sympathetic to, to the, 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 the comments you're making. Great. Um, so I think that wraps it up. Uh, thank all the authors. Thank all the discussants. Thank everyone who came and participated. And so this was planned to be the first of many. I hope to see you again next year. Thank you very much.